Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Um, a few years ago, I was on a men's retreat with you guys. I shared once. So I'm glad you invited me back. Let me do it a few more times this time. I gave Chris a hard time that last one I was at because we had these armbands, but there were like penguins on them. I was like, that's a weird thing for a men's conference, but I got to give it to him this time. He is a good representative because you know he was working hard. He's up here talking. Do you notice he's got paint on his elbows here? Like he's, you could tell he's working hard. He's making this happen. So that's a good rep for a men's conference to do with paint on him. Colossians 1. Now, I'm blessed to be here. You know, if you can live a simple life in fellowship with God and his, his people, that's the best type of life you can live. Uh, there is no better life than that. If you think there is, you're not going to like heaven very much. So uh, that's, that's what heaven's all about. Just, Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, those he puts around you. So... I'm um, just blessed, blessed to be here with you guys, blessed to be a part of this event. But let's pray, then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness toward us. We know without you, we wouldn't have a hope of heaven. We wouldn't have been redeemed. Most of our lives would not be anything like what they are. And we know, Lord, even where we struggle, our hope is that you can still save us and conform us in your image and likeness, and that you're never going to leave us or forsake us. So we ask that you would just come here, do your work during this time. Bless us as we enter into a time of seeking you in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 24, we'll read down a little bit, but I'm going to focus on the last two verses of this section. So Paul says this, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Here's Paul as an apostle, given this incredible stewardship of the mystery of Jesus Christ, literally suffering for that, he's saying, as an example, continuing and following Christ's example of giving his life to work life in others. And with his heart kind of caught up in the glow of what he says is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He then, you notice, begins to talk to, and he has something repetitive there, every man. Paul has something that he wants to say to everyone. His heart is very wide, Jew, Gentile. Every man I run into, I want to say something to them. Now, certainly this man relates to 
he's using it in a generic sense, men and women, but for our sense, I thought this was a good section here for a men's conference because Paul says, I got something to say to every man. Sometimes there's things in the Bible that are for specific people. Maybe for you as a father, the Bible says something to children. The Bible says something to wives. The Bible says something to certain areas in our life. But here, Paul wants to say something that is for everyone. So no man is excused. No man will be excluded. I could say uh, this is for all y'all, right? So something in here is going to relate to where you are and what the Lord would want to minister. And what Paul says when he wants to talk to every man is, first and foremost, in verse 28, you notice he says this, Him we preach. Paul wants to tell every man about a particular man. He wants to tell every man generally about Jesus Christ specifically. Because he knows this about Jesus Christ, he says in that same chapter, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. See, what Paul is doing is he says, all the fullness of God rests in Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do is, before I have a conversation with any man, I'm going to get ahead of the game. Because every single situation or problem or even blessing you have in your life is going to relate somehow directly and ultimately to the Son of Man. Some, something that is going on in your life that you might not think is somehow related to Jesus is somehow related to Jesus. We might not even know why all the time or how, but Paul knows he is ultimately what becomes the answer. Now, in different ways, certainly. If we're empty, the Bible says he's our fullness. If we're experiencing brokenness, he reconciles all things to himself. If we're struggling with thoughts on things or earth or behind it, Paul says his rule is over both and will extend beyond. Certainly how that works in our lives, it works different ways. But Paul knows it all relates back to him and I think even in general as men, if you see a guy doing something and he's very skilled at that thing, it's a blessing to see that. Uh, you know, you see a dude who works on drywall all day long, it's pretty impressive actually. If you try to patch that hole, it'll take me four hours. This guy takes him like five minutes and it looks like new. You know, you see a guy working on cabinetry, you see somebody who's an expert plumber or something, somebody skilled in what they do, it's impressive to watch them. You know, somebody's given a life to this. And what Paul says here is, well, Jesus is the one who's skilled in the trade of life. And he's actually the only one who's perfect. And so before I talk to anybody else about life, I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. It's him we preach. When I show up, the focus is going to be him. I want every man to hear something about Jesus Christ and walk away with something about Jesus Christ, not about Paul. Paul would say very openly, we do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves bondservants for Jesus' sake. If you walked away thinking about me from this or you walked away from a message that Paul gave and you were thinking about Paul, Paul will not be happy. 
He wanted you to be thinking about Jesus somehow. Somehow your life connected to Jesus because he knew that is what would answer whatever the issue would be in our lives. So if you had a problem with some of those other things I mentioned and you knew that guy who was really good at drywall, right? And somebody was like, oh man, my kids, they just put a hole in the wall. You'd be like, I got a guy for that. You know what Paul says? I got a guy for that. You got issues in life? You have something going on? I got a guy for that. Jesus Christ is the one that I preach. And the reality is, if Jesus can't help them, I can't help them anyway. If Jesus can't be the one who extends ultimately what you need, then I don't have anything else for you. Paul says, he's always going to be the one that I preach. He's going to teach us that when people are done, they should walk away knowing that it's him we preach. That Jesus is the preeminent man. And we should hear that. I think we should take that example. If people spend time with you, if people walk away from you, the people who are in your life should know Jesus better for having known you. You should reflect something of him. You could be a quiet guy and do that. It doesn't have to be through speech or public speech. It could be your life. We know that was what Jesus did for 30 years. He was in a carpenter shop. Well, he didn't do it when he was like six, we'll just say, for a long portion of his life. Most of his life. He's only in public ministry for three years. But most of his life, he was in the home circle, quiet business circle, quiet life. But you walked away and you had seen something when you came in contact with him. Jesus wants to be the preeminent man because he is the preeminent man. And Paul wants every man to know and make sure that Jesus is the first man, that we're not preaching ourselves, that, that the sufficiency we're offering people is not ourselves. We're not anybody's savior. You could be a servant in life. You could be a helper in life. Paul says we preach ourselves bond servants for Jesus' sake, but there's only one savior. There's only one person who ultimately solves the issues in other people's lives. And if I didn't know any other man, if I knew this man, I'd be okay. So Paul says, what, I gotta tell every man something. The first thing I gotta tell him is it's him that we preach. This man, Jesus Christ. Then he says, I'm going to notice, verse 28, warn every man. Greek word here translated for warn is actually evenly translated in the Bible, warn or admonish. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. And I think we need both, certainly. Uh, there was a sign up on the side of the highway that said, uh, what was the exact phrase? It was something like, 40,000 men are going to die of stubbornness this year. And underneath, there was like a little thing for a medical test. It was like, get your prostate exam regular or something like that, right? Some dude had climbed up on the sign and spray painted on there, no, we won't. <laughs> now, that guy probably needed that warning in life. Who knows, right? If that's what your attitude is, then you probably need that. So some people have that attitude, and, and Paul knows, I gotta warn every man. 
Every man at some point in his life is going to need a warning. Paul made it a habit. Acts 20, 31 tells us, Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Paul, like God, because he loves people, warns them. And he says, I got warnings for every man, because every man at some place in his life is going to need that warning, and that warning is going to be God's gracious hand in your life to save you. God might warn you about something tonight or tomorrow. Or if not, some point in your life, these are going to come into your life. And it's not that you're not a good man. It's that you're a human man. David was a good man. And one of his most blessed moments was when we know, if you know the story, there's this dude named Nabal. He was a jerk. He mouthed off to David. And David decided, I'm going to go kill him put his sword on, got there. Some of the servants ran, told Nabal's wife. Her name was Abigail. She comes out, and she comes. Pretty amazing speech. You can read this in the scripture. But essentially says, look, you know God's anointed you. Why would you go and do this? You're going to do something you regret. And what the Bible tells us is David pauses right there, and he blesses her. He says, God sent you, essentially, to save me from doing something that I knew was stupid. He saw the warning of God in her coming to him. And it was God's gracious hand of love. And he didn't get upset about that. He didn't take it personally. It's very easy if somebody warns us or says something to us to begin to act like we don't need that. But Paul says, I'm going to warn every man. And a good man will take that warning and will see God's loving hand of grace in it. You're there to save me. Proverbs 25, 12 says, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold a wise, is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. That the man who is wise receives that warning, sees God's hand, and the Proverbs say, he'll sport it like an earring. Like, this was good for me. I'm not ashamed to see, say, Man, I needed that. In the next chapter, Paul's going to share his fears that these Colossians might be deceived with pervasive or persuasive words and cheated or plundered by the philosophy of men. He's saying 2, 6, and 7, you therefore have received, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So Paul knew Look, I'm warning you right now because I'm afraid somebody's going to come in and is going to trick you with subtle words. It was preventative. Sometimes warning, like David's, is in the moment. Sometimes it's, if you listen to this now, you won't get in trouble later. This will make you wise. This will give you understanding. Don't head this direction. Don't go down that path. Heed the warnings that God sends to you. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, as I said, is the word also means admonish, and it's translated admonish a number of different ways. The admonishing side of the word gives us the idea of being the person who loves enough 
to give the warning. There's a receiving side of it, and there's the giving side of it. Again, in Romans 15, 14, Paul would say, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. He assumes that believers admonish one another. Colossians 3.16 will say, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The idea there is certainly admonishment in good things. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, he said, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And that's somebody who's a spiritual mentor or a spiritual leader or an elder in the church. 2 Thessalonians 3.15, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's a brother in Christ who's not living righteously. So the scriptures all over assume that believers will admonish one another. Now, we could be afraid to be called hypocrites or Pharisees, but the Bible says I should be willing to admonish my brother to give the warning where it's needed. I can, I don't know, most of you probably, especially if you're a little older, remember both in my life. I can remember times where I did not say something to somebody for one reason or another. And I can remember times where they went in negative direction. And in those scenarios, my conscience hurt me. I felt like I was guilty in that scenario. I should have said something. And I can remember other scenarios where I have said something to a brother in the Lord, and they went the wrong direction, but my conscience was clear in that scenario because I had said something. The ball was in their court at that point. But personally for me, in the first scenario, I had not loved that brother the way I should have. In the second scenario, it was up to them. I had extended the right love there. And certainly you have people who will receive that, but I think for us, if we are going to love one another rightly, we have to be willing to say something. There is no single individual who will live perfectly, which means every man must be warned or admonished somewhere. At some point in our life, at multiple points in our life, we all need this, and some will be bigger than others. And if we all need it, and nobody likes to do the dirty work of it, then we should really be thankful for anybody who does, even though we're most likely not in the moment. Unless, like David, we can see God's hand in it. And we should be more humble like that. But I think for you and I, it's a sign of maturity that's willing to speak up and say something, a sign of real love. We understand this in other realms. We'll have a family steps in as an intervention when there's an addict and they need to step in and try to save their life. I worked with youth ministry for a long time. Suicide's always an issue. Right? And one of the things I would ask is, is it better to keep a secret or save a life? Because right? there's so much pressure to keep a secret. We need to be the type of men that can admonish one another when it's needed. James says in James 5, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We need to be willing to intervene 
for one another. Have a Christian intervention. Admonish a brother that's a true brother in Christ that is, you know, walking the wrong direction. He may go the other direction, and he may be determined to lose himself, but he shouldn't without a word from us. In the end, there's only one man who saves people, it's Jesus. But I am responsible to admonish, to say something. So Paul says, I warn every man. He said, I did it, you know, day and night with tears for three years to those Ephesian elders. You saw it. People were on his heart because he loved them. He cared about them. He also says, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Paul, whenever he met somebody, they were someone who needed to be taught. Like Paul knew he needed to be taught. And who he wanted to teach them about, of course, was Jesus Christ. But the idea is, we're all still learners. Every man, no matter where he finds himself in life, still needs a lesson in relation to Jesus. Doesn't matter if you just got saved a month ago or if you've been walking with Christ for 40 years, you don't know it all. And there's something that Jesus wants to teach you and has to minister to you right now. We're all learning about him and who he is. And Paul knew every man was a man that needed to be taught. And Paul was jealous about this fact, and he wanted to keep that sphere of teaching centered around Jesus Christ. He would say of his gospel in Galatians, I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Christ. He would say to the Ephesians, if indeed you heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus... He assumed they had been taught. The Lord ministered to them. There is something, again, that was divine. Jesus taught him something, and that was what he was sharing with people. And he could say to those Ephesians, you, you've learned Christ. Christ has ministered himself to you. He's taught you through his Holy Spirit. He would say to the Colossians again, you've been rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. We all learn from him because he's the perfect man. Are you a father? He's the perfect one. Are you a husband? He's the perfect one. Are you a perfect husband? You're wrong, right? The idea is, whatever you command me as a husband, you're the one who has to teach me. You have to show me. As a son, as a brother, we all have to learn his lessons, not by picking out what we want and emphasizing it most but by walking with him and allowing him to be the teacher. Now, he'll do this through life. We might not like what he's teaching us or how the class is being run, but he's the teacher ultimately. And he will lead us to the lessons that we need to learn. C.S. Lewis called Jesus the eternal iconoclast. If you're like me, you don't know what iconoclast means, so I had to look that up. And it's a person who attacks cherished beliefs as error or breaks religious images as set up for veneration. And his point is just, we have these kind of, we can get a kind of idea about Jesus, and then we don't need to learn about that anymore. But what happens is Jesus comes and he breaks that image. He's the one who teaches us 
about himself in a new way. C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, says this, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time, and he shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins, and most are offended by the iconoclasm, and blessed are those who are not. What it means to be taught by Jesus is to allow Jesus to reshape his image in our own mind. We can think we have it down, and then Jesus does something a little bit different. You begin to learn about him, and you say, how does this fit with who you are? I thought of you in a certain way. You read through the scriptures, and he teaches us. The reality is, if we thought we knew a lot about Jesus Christ, and we may know things about Jesus, the disciples felt like they knew a lot about Jesus, and every single day they learned new things about Jesus. They walked around with them, and they thought they learned amazing things. Walk into a synagogue, and he casts out a demon, and they say, what type of man is this that even the demons obey him? Then they up, end up in a storm, and he tells that to be calm, and now they're, it says, exceedingly afraid, and they say, what type of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? And that just kept happening all over again. They learned something new. They thought they had this image of him set up, and then Jesus just shatters that image. And they learn something new about him. Now, in some ways, that could be almost frightening, but it doesn't have to be. What that means is eternity is going to be worth it because he's the only person that could fill up an eternity with who he is because he's perfect and he's infinite. And you could keep seeing something new. And the image just keeps getting better and better. And Paul knew no matter where a man was, he needed to be taught. Not just our idea about Jesus or what it's like to follow him, but letting Jesus teach us himself. By spirit and truth, if we stay in his word and his spirit is leading us, he will teach us who he is. John, the apostle who walked with Jesus and knew this, would say this in 1 John 2. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Basically what John's saying is, you have the Holy Spirit, he'll teach you who Jesus is. And you don't need anybody to get in between you and Jesus. In Calvary Chapel, that's one thing that we make very clear. Read the Bible. Jesus can teach you who he is. You, you, there's no pope or priest or pastor in between you and him. We could be a help to one another, but we're not an intermediary. There's one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Christ Jesus. Paul says it's him we preach. Every man needs to learn about him. Every man needs to be warned here and there. Every man needs to be taught. Certainly, we should be the type that become people that can teach others. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul will say, These things have you heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. 
Are you the type of man that can teach what you've learned about Jesus walking with him? We need that. But even there, we're still learners. And if you feel like, you know what, I don't, I don't really know what I could teach anybody about Jesus Christ, that's cool. Just keep being a learner. There's no shame in being a learner. You take your proper position then. And eventually, pretty quickly, if you follow Jesus any amount of time, you start to learn things pretty quick about who he is, about what his plan for your life might be. Paul says, I'm teaching every man. And he also says what his goal is, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. If you look at a man, Paul had a thought. If we look at another guy, what's our initial thought? I don't know. You know, we put people in categories. Maybe your initial thought is like, I think I can take that guy. Whatever your thought is, right, that when you look at another guy. Paul's thought was, I want that guy to stand in heaven as everything that God wants him to be. That was Paul's thought. To be perfect, the idea is complete or mature. I want to present every man. There wasn't a man he looked at that he thought, Jesus can't do it with that man. Or that there's no way this man could be there. Because he was that man. If anybody wasn't going to be made into Christ's image and likeness, it was him. And Jesus stepped into his life and changed him. And he knew if he loved him, he loved everybody else. And so he looked at every man and he said, I want to present that man as perfect or complete, mature before Jesus Christ. Again, he's saying in Colossians 1, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That mature man of God, the creation becoming what the creator wants it to be. That was Paul's desire for men. At the end of Colossians, this guy Epaphras, he'll say, who was praying for the church in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently in prayers for you, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. I think that touched Paul's heart. He heard this guy Epaphras playing, praying for the church, and he said, I hear him praying that that church will stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And that struck a chord with Paul's heart because that was his heart too when he looked at people. That's what he wanted from the Colossians. You see, in the Garden of Eden, man was for God. Then sin came into the picture and God just became another thing that man began to use for himself. The same with the world and other men. But now the grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. We've got a strange mix in the world. We have people who want their life to be for God, and there are people who want to live their life as if they are God. Those are two very different things. And our will is challenged constantly in regard to those things. Right? To have your life for God, not just to have God in your life. There are plenty of people who you know, want Jesus in their life to fix it up when they have mistakes or make it what they want it to be. Or, you know, they'll have 
church or the pastor like be there to make things right because that's what your job is. But that's very different than saying, no, my life is for him. I'm created for him. He's the one who takes the lead. He's the one that's the ultimate purpose. And outside of him, we're all just people who live for ourselves. Paul says, I don't want man to be in that scenario. I want him to be what God made him to be, to stand before him perfect and complete, where a man is what God wants him to be, where he is the most free, actually, when he is what he was created to be in fellowship with God. There's an old priest type of guy who just prayed a real simple prayer, and it was, my God, thy creature answers thee. The point is, that was the position he was taking. Like, you made me, and I'm just speaking back to you. You're the creator. I'm the creation. You're the one who I'm made for. Paul wanted people to live in that position to be mature, conformed into his image and likeness. Jude would write, Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That was something that was on that early church's heart to see people presented before God, perfect and complete, saved, what they are, who they are, free from sin and all its effects. That was what Paul wanted. That was what Christ wanted. And Jude says, now unto him who is able, and the him is Jesus Christ. It's not us. Like, I'm not able to perfect myself and to keep myself from falling. But he is able to do that in me. And he is the one who is going to be able him we preach to present me faultless with exceeding joy before his Father in heaven. And my hope is not that I'm so smart or so strong or so spiritual that I'm going to make my way through this world all on my own and be good. There's nothing close to that. My hope is I got Jesus Christ. He's going to warn me when I need it. He's going to admonish me when I need it. He's going to teach me when I need it, and he's going to drag me where he wants me to go, which is the best place, and he'll mature me and be patient with me and ultimately conform me into his image and likeness. Now, Paul says, verse 29, to this end, I also labor. Paul says, this is what I'm working towards in life. This is what I want to see happen. Again, we, we respect a good work ethic most of the time. To see another man and have him work and have him have a good work ethic is respectable. Paul says, I labor. I worked toward this end. This is what I want to see in life. This is, this is what I do. I preach Jesus Christ. I warn and admonish men. I teach them about who he is. I'm praying and working to see them come 
to a maturity in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, to the completion of what God wants in their life. It's a worthy cause to give a life to, the blood, sweat, and tears of it. Something worth working on. There are some things that are not worth working on or giving your life to. This is a cause that not only is worth giving one's life to, it's something you can give your life to. Because, and there's a lot of people out there who need Jesus. And there's a lot of people out there who have Jesus, who need the same things that we do. They need warnings, they need admonishment, they need to be taught who he is. They need to mature in him, grow in him. And Paul says, this is the type of thing that I can say to every single man, and I know it's true. And it will hit every single one of them somewhere, and it's something that they need to hear. And I can give my life to this end. I have labored for this. It's gonna take a little work to make something like this happen. Right? We understand that with other things. Your wife like, is like, we need a new kitchen. And you're like, this is gonna take so many hours, right? You understand, I'm gonna get home, I got two hours here, I can give this much time before I gotta go do this, and this is gonna, and there's always gonna be something that goes wrong, and right, when we begin to look at work in our lives, we, we begin to count up the time, oh man, I know it's gonna take a certain amount of effort to accomplish this physical task. Well, what Paul says is, yeah, this also took effort. This, this if you wanna be a part of this work, it's gonna take some labor, it takes time, it takes some effort. It's gonna cost you something here and there. It's not terrible. It's good to have work to do, right? We can complain about work, but you, you get an injury or you get put out of work or you're unable to work, that's worse. <laughs> Got nothing to do. To have something, and this is something that every man can do, and be a part of. Jesus doesn't say, mm, you know, you, no, Paul, okay, the rest of us. Now we can all be a part of this and are supposed to be a part of this. And the wonderful thing is, again, even in that, he doesn't leave us alone. Look, Paul says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul says he worked harder than anybody else, but Jesus worked in him. It wasn't all him. He's like, even the things I see in me, it's not me. I think Paul could literally look at his life. He was a Jew, certainly, but he had that Greek background. He had an intellect that was unique, but he was ministering to people that were kind of outside of his normal intellectual realm with the Pharisees. And I think he could look at his life and just say, yeah, I'm doing this, but God, God made me this person that can enter into dual cultures. God gave me the intellect he gave me, he gave me the background he gave me, he gave me the calling that he gave me. Paul suffered certain things and saw the grace of God in his life, and he's like, this wasn't me. Paul was working, making tents, we know, wiping sweat off his head with rags and people were getting healed. He knew that wasn't him. He wasn't like, God, I got this good idea if I sweat and people touch it, they should get healed. Like no normal person would think that thought. 
It just started happening. And that was God. Like Paul knew, this is God. This is not me. This is not my power accomplishing these things. He was just doing the things that God had called him to do. And God's power worked through those scenarios in unique ways. So he could say, yeah, I labored. I'm giving myself to this. But the real power that I'm seeing is not mine. It's his. And I would just encourage you twofold. Uh, I, I think certainly, again, as I said, God cares about every single man that's here tonight. And there's not a single one that is outside of this exhortation and section of Scripture. Jesus Christ is the person that you need to hear about and focus on. And God will step into our lives at the right times to warn us or to call us to be a part of his work of warning others. Because he wants to teach every single one of us about himself. And you might think, I know, I know this, I heard this story, or how many of us have had the experience where you read something in the Bible a million times and all of a sudden God opens up your eyes and you see something new and he teaches us something new about himself. Or you're going through life and you're like, man, I'm in a situation that I've never been before. You could do really good in one area in life and then you come to new areas of life. God's always moving us forward. You're gonna learn something new about him. Right? You're gonna find something about Jesus Christ that's really important. You're young, you begin to take steps to walk with Jesus on your own. You learn something about him. You're in the strength of your life. You're in the middle of things in your life that God's given you skill to do. And you're laboring and you're gonna find things about him. You begin to get older and maybe you did really well when God gave you strength, but now you're losing strength in your body or in your mind. Maybe you were faithful with when God gave you strength, but now when you give your strength back to him. Can you do that well? You're gonna learn something about Jesus there. He's the great iconoclast. You think you know everything about him and then he shatters it. And you learn something new. And you're taught, you've been to walk with him. And the whole time he's conforming you into his image and likeness. Showing you who he is. Taking you somewhere you've never been before. And it's a labor of a lifetime, and he allows us to join in it if we would want to, if we want to. He would always say, if any man wants to follow me, a call to men, but not a command, if any man wants to follow me. I'll tell you what's involved. You'll have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Isn't it funny, if you ever noticed, when Jesus healed people, he never told them, now you need to follow me. Take up your bed and walk. Go home. You're healed of your leprosy. Go to the priest. Give the sacrifices. He never said, then come back here. I better see you in my train. You know what I just did for you. It's a choice. If any man, if you want, he invites you in. And he will give you what you need to be a part of the work that he's seeking to accomplish in you and the world around you. And that work, he's got all the power, all the wisdom, all the might to take care of it and make sure that it happens. 
So I'm going to pray. Certainly, if the Lord's ministering something specific to you, I encourage you, maybe grab another brother, ask him to pray for you. Afterwards, I would also just say, if the Lord's admonishing you to say something to somebody else that you know you love, say something. Be a man that is willing to step in and intervene for a brother. Like I said, if they go their way, they can go their way, but it shouldn't be without a word from us. And if God is teaching you something new about himself, just follow him. Give him the space. You might not understand right away, but give him the space to teach you who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers here. I thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. I thank you that you never leave us or forsake us in this process. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're willing to step down into our lives and do the work that needs to be done. Help us, Lord Jesus, to have ears to hear you, the things you're trying to say. Certainly, Lord, if you're warning us, let us bless you for that warning. Keep us on the right path. And Lord Jesus, where we can be a part of your work, Lord, in this world, with our brothers and sisters, with our families, with your body, pray you strengthen us to be faithful laborers right where you've placed us. So we commit ourselves to you. Certainly, Lord, we pray for tonight, our fellowship. We pray for tomorrow, Lord Jesus, and our time as we consecrate it to you. We pray that it would be sanctified for your purposes. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.